Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedict Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 103rd episode of the Nauticast titled... The Mad King, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 3 in which Rob Stark wins a glorious, glorious victory. And that's it. Nothing else bad happens in this chapter. What? What's such a feel-good chapter, man? I really appreciate that we did the order this way, right? Uh, keep reading, Jeff. Oh, it's the chapter where Joffrey responds to having Sansa beaten in public. Oh, man. You know it's real bad when Tyrion Lannister has to play the hero in this story. <laughs> that's when you know how far things have sunk. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester, Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West of the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyria, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, one of the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons. Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Dades and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldivar, the waiter for T.W.A.L., A.A. Braun, Dampair Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked Quint the Pencils, The Eraser, and The First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Shoma the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Locus, Blood, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and Wolverine of House Corgoyle, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you to all our counselors and a very warm welcome to Lady Elizabeth. Absolutely. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducting novels, histories, interviews, the Winsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Josh Snow, a sworn sword patron, who asks, Hello again, Stannis Bros. My question relates to the small nuances George likes to include that potentially link to other parts of the story. Some of my favorites are Bran meets the Three-Eyed Crow in one of his first dreams, and he asks for corn. Kind of like another bird we know who is totally not Bloodraven. Or when Arya begins to consistently utter Valor Magulus without knowing its meaning and before it becomes her livelihood. Do you have any favorite small hints or nuances? What do you think, Jeff? What are your favorite, like, seeds that George plants early on in the story that grow into, like, wild and unexpected forms later on? I love that connection, and I never caught it before about the Three-Eyed Crow and Mormont's Ravens, who's, who's referring to Say, asking for corn. Say, you got any corn? corn? 
Yeah, say it got to be corn, and then corn, 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 as as John sees all the time, and, and Sam eventually sees in a storm of swords. So I had never actually seen that before, but that's a great catch, and kudos to uh, to Josh for that. I, I was thinking about, and uh, he asked for things that were like connecting to like other parts of the story. I mean, you could talk about some of the pro- prophetic sides of it. I was thinking specifically of that vision that Danny has in a storm of swords of who her lover might be, and she's like can't really like see who he is because he's like kind of out there and distant, and he's she sees him in dream, but his like visage is 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 shaded or shrouded from her and that that's obviously Jon Snow guys obviously come on let's let's get let's 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 put our cards on the table <laughs> here but I mean I also think of stuff like that's not necessarily connected to, to the narrative but something I really love and we cover this in the Game of Thrones but when John Aaron is investigating uh when Eddard finds out from John Aaron's groom that John Aaron was like breeding hounds together and finding out like how they would come out if you would breed like one color of a hound to another to another hound and that ends up being like Ed, Eddard never finds like resolution to that but as readers when we go back as rereaders especially we go back and we see like oh that's what Jenner is doing he's trying to see if he bred two golden haired puppies together would he get a golden haired puppy or a black puppy or if the father was this way and the grandfather was this sort of genetic traits he was basically doing a little bit of as we talked about I think in that episode like early genetic sleuthing on the Lancers in order to determine whether the information that Stannis brought to him was actually accurate and valid again like a lot of, I, I love the way that George does a lot of like these kind of small seeds that have blossoming into bigger things I mean we could talk for years and the fandom has talked for years about different aspects of Things that George planned back in the Game of Thrones and Duncan Egg that are becoming like much bigger events down the road. But I've talked enough. Sir, what are your favorite small hints or nuances that George has planted in the narrative that might have connections to other parts of the series? Well, since Sir Josh brought up Stannis, gotta gotta do our part <laughs> as the Stannis podcast. And there's one one detail that always stands out for me in this regard. It's from a, from a Storm of Swords. So you have Davos's final chapter where he's he's reading the letter from the Night's Watch by the light of the magic sword. Stannis is about to execute him for sending Edric Storm away. Davos uh, saves his his own life by telling Stannis about the threat to the Night's Watch and encouraging him to sail north and defend them, which he does. And then when they get there, uh, there's a Sam chapter immediately afterwards where he's reuniting with all his friends at Castle Black and Pip and Grin are telling him all about Stannis and Melisandre and how they burned someone to get north. And I remember very distinctly thinking my first time through, oh, was that Davos? Oh my god, yeah. Wow. Because we don't know if he survived. His last chapter is a cliffhanger with Stannis about to execute him. And yeah, they're there. They followed his idea. But we don't know if he's alive at that point. And later on, Stannis praises Davos and you get the idea, okay, he's still alive somewhere. But I I, I think that, you know, we turned out it was Alistair Florent, the other hand who got burned. <laughs> But I think those 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 small little slippages about Stannis's character is what I've always found so fascinating. These hints at things that aren't uh, fully fleshed out, because of course Stannis is a non POV character, and George wants to keep that a lot of the hidden mystery, like how we don't really see his relationship with Melisandre actually directly very much at all, or how you know when he says he wants to sacrifice Edric to bring back a dragon because dragon wings ever Westeros, oh there would be such a, and Davos cuts him off these empty blank spaces around Stannis's character I've always found really interesting about him because of course what it's leading up to in terms of Sir Josh's question about the links to later events is the burning of Shireen yeah. and it all just, just kind of circle around that and I think I, I, I love the, the ways uh, George George plans for that large and small by always having you as we've said about Stannis before kind of you know off kilter and not sure how you're supposed to feel about him and I think a character like that is just you can do so much wonderful foreshadowing because you're never sure what he's going to do Back in the Game of Thrones, we didn't even encounter Stannis whatsoever, but he was always there, especially as Eddard approached his demise. Stannis became much more prominent as we were pushing forward. And that was interesting because you're like, oh, this guy seems like this guy's interesting. I can't wait to meet him. And then you're in a Clash of Kings. You're like, 
I don't know about meeting this guy after all. He's um, he's a little strange. He's but he's but he's, he seems okay at some levels, but seems like really not okay at other levels. Like <laughs> kind, of, kind of like a human being. So, thank you very much, Sir Josh, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Notacast podcast, you are welcome to become a Sworn Sword patron or higher over at patreon.com slash Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get uh, 25 bonus uh, Song of Ice and Fire episodes, 6 Fever Dream episodes, show notes, access to our exclusive Slack, and more. And, as we've talked about in our March Patreon update and want to revisit here, we are getting very close to our next stretch goal of attaining 900 total patrons. And when we hit that goal, we will do a full-out multi-part analysis <laughs> of my personal favorite chapter in all of the Song of Ice and Fire, The Forsaken. If that or the other Patreon benefits interest you, consider heading on over to patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, to join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Yeah, it's going to be fun to do The Forsaken. I, you know, I'll get to talk like once, you know, every one minute to every 10 minutes. There's battle stuff. There's like strategy and things going on. Kind of. I mean, yeah. There's religious stuff. You like religion. (laughs) Yes, I I like religion. You're told. That's good. Oh, man. No, it's going to be so much fun. We'll find things. No, it'll be great. I'm genuinely excited for that. And, you know, as we're, like, recording this, we're about 42 patrons left to go. And it was 59 last month. So it's very exciting for me that we're actually progressing very quickly towards that. I think we'll actually be hitting our goal within the next three, maybe four months. We'll see. That episode, it's going to be 100% just Jeff bragging about being there when the chapter was read. (laughs) And me just fuming that I wasn't. Oh, I, I, I which will be worth it on its own. I swear, that'll be the icebreaker. Yes, that'll be the icebreaker. Like, hey, Emma, do you remember? Yeah, yeah. No, you Jeff, like oh, you describing remember? the event and me just like with like cartoon smoke coming out of my ears, <laughs> like I'm Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny just pulled a fast one. Oh, it's gonna be fun. So if you guys are interested in something like that, of watching Emma smoke come out of Emma's ears, me bragging for about ten <laughs> minutes, and then Emma talking uh-huh. about the Forsaken for seven to, for seven to eight hours, you know, feel free to come on over to patreon.com forward slash notacastasof to attempt to potentially join our Patreon. But enough about Patreon for now. Let's turn our attention to Sansa Stark. This is her chapter after all. When we last checked in with Sansa, she had met Dantus Hollard and had hopes for the first time that she could escape King's Landing and Joffrey. Let's see what happens to Sansa in this analysis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa 3. And oh, good Lord, it's this chapter, Jesus, here we go. And no, it's not because it's a Sansa chapter that I'm complaining about already. I've reformed my ways, I'm holy. You'll find out in a moment. Sandra Clegane warns Sansa Stark that she needs to hustle her ass up or it's going to go real fucking bad for her. And Sansa dutifully tries to hurry, but her fingers fumble at her buttons and knots in her dress. The hound was always rough-tongued, but something in the way he had looked at her filled her with dread. Had Joffrey found out about her meetings with Sir Dantos? Please, no, she thought as she brushed out her hair. Sir Dantos was her only hope. I have to look pretty. Joff likes me to look pretty. He's always liked me in this gown. This color. Sansa finishes up and makes her way to the side of Sandra Clegane, the side that wasn't burned, interestingly. She asks what she did, but it's not her that's raised Joffrey's ire. It's her brother, Rob. Sansa quickly states that Rob is a traitor and that, ha- and that she had nothing to do with whatever treasons Rob had committed. She knows that if Rob hurt Jamie, she would face Sir Ellen Payne. The hound mocks Sansa for being so well-trained as he directs her to the lower bailey. She passes through a large group of people gathered around archery butts. Everyone either glares at her or avoids her gaze altogether. And then Sansa sees a yellow cat dying from a crossbow bolt through the ribs. Sir Tantos Haller approaches on a stick horse and whispers at Sansa to be brave. Joffrey stands at the center of everyone, winding up his crossbow 
Joffrey stands in the center of everyone, winding up his crossbow again with Sir Boros and Sir Marin next to him. Sansa falls her knees, but Joffrey states that Neely won't save her. She's to, she's to answer for her brother's crimes. And he then orders her to stand. Sansa pleads that she played no part whatsoever in what River Rob did, but Joffrey only yells for someone to get Sansa to her feet. The hound pulled her to her feet, not ungently. Sir Lancel, Joff said, tell her of this outrage. Sansa had always thought Lancel Lannister comely and well-spoken. But there was neither pity nor kindness in the look he gave her. Using some vile sorcery, your brother fell upon Sir Stafford Lannister with an army of wargs, not three days' ride from Lannisport. Thousands of good men were butchered as they slept without the chance to lift a sword. After the slaughter, the Northmen feasted on the flesh of the slain. Horror catches in her throat at the same time that Joffrey sneers about her inability to say anything. Sir Dantos tries to intervene, but Joffrey tells him to shut the fuck up. The quote-unquote king points the crossbow at Sansa's face and declares that the Starks are all unnatural, just like their direwolves. Like the one who savaged Joffrey back in the Game of Thrones, Sansa won. That was Arya's wolf, Sansa said. Lady never hurt you. But you killed her anyways. No, your father did, Joffrey said. But I killed your father. I wish I'd done it myself. I killed a man last night who was bigger than your father. They came to the gate shouting my name and calling for bread like I was some baker. But I taught them better. I shot the loudest one, I shot the loudest one right through the throat. <sighs> man of the people, everyone. There's good King Joffrey doing his part for the realm. Fuck that kid. Facing the crossbow quarrel, Sansa asks that the man died. And Joffrey brags that, yeah, he died. Crossbow bolt went right through his throat. So fucking awesome. And he shot a woman too, but he's but his quarrel only hit her in the arm. But then Joff lowers the crossbow. He can't kill Sansa. His mom said they killed Jamie if they killed Sansa. So lame. So she's gonna be punished anyways, as a warning for what will happen if Rob doesn't yield. Brave, brave King Joffrey, everyone. Joffrey orders Sandra to hit her, but then Sir Dantos pushes forward, asking if he could do the deed. Sansa realizes what Dantos is doing, trying to spare her from a real beating, and she prays that Joffrey will laugh and quote be satisfied as Dantos hits her over the head with his melon, but Joffrey doesn't even smile. Boros, Marin. Sir Marin, Sir Marin Trant seized Dantos by the arm and flung him brusquely away. The red-faced fool went sprawling, broomstick, melon and all. Sir Boros seized Sansa. Leave her face, Joffrey committed. I like her pretty. Good lord. I mean, I've said this before, but just fuck this kid, man. Boros punches Sansa in the stomach and then grabs her hair when she falls to the floor. He drops his sword and Sansa thinks for a moment that he's going to slit her throat. Instead, he slaps her thigh with the flat side of his sword. Sansa screams in pain and cries. She tries to reassure herself that this torture will be over soon as she loses count of the times that Boros hits her with his sword. Enough, she heard the round grasp. Enough, she heard the hound rasp. No, it isn't, the king replied. Boros, make her naked. Boros reaches a hand down Sansa's bodice and rips hard like a fucking monster, and Sansa's breasts are exposed to the whole of the court. She covers herself up as people laugh at her, and then Joffrey orders that Sansa gets beaten bloody. Joffrey is going to make her suffer to teach Rabba, what is the meaning of this? The imp's voice cracked like a whip, and suddenly Sansa was free. She stumbled to her knees, arms crossed over her chest, her breath ragged. Is this your notion of chivalry, Sir Boros? Tyrion demanded. Lan Tyrion Lannister demanded angrily. His pet Selser stood with him and one of his wildlings, the one with the burned eye. What sort of knight beats helpless maids? The sort who serves as king, imp. Sir Boros raised his sword, and Sir Marin stepped up beside him, his blade scra scraping clear of its scabbard. Careful with those, warned the dwarf sellsword. You don't want to get blood all over those pretty white cloaks. I mean, look, I've read this chapter and reread this chapter many, many times. I've rewatched this scene from season two. And even as I write this, I'm still breathing a sigh of relief here, man. So good. good. It's a good thing that Tyrion is here. Tyrion then orders that someone give Sansa something to cover 
Tyrion then orders that someone gives Sansa something to cover herself up with, and Sandra Clegane immediately jumps in to cover her with his white cloak. Imagine that. The fabric feels rough against her skin, but Sansa thinks that, quote, no velvet ever felt so fine. Love that line. Outraged, Tyrion tells Joffrey that Sansa is going to be her queen. What the fuck are you doing, you asshole? Well, Joffrey is punishing Sansa. And her crime? Uh, she's a Stark? Yeah, and you're a fucking goose, Joffrey. You can't talk to me like that. The king can do as he likes. Aerys Targaryen did as he liked. Has your mother ever told you what happened to him? Sir Boros Blunt harumped. No man threatens his grace in the presence of the king's guard. Tyrion Lannister raised an eyebrow. I'm not threatening the king, sir. I'm educating my nephew. Bronn, Timon, the next time Sir Boros opens his mouth, kill him. The dwarf smiled. Now that was a threat, sir. See the difference? Boros, who by the way sucks so bad as a Kingsguard knight that he will become Tommen's poison catcher in A Dance with Dragons, threatens to tell Cersei like a fucking brat, and Tyrion's like, yeah, do it, dude. In fact, bring Cersei here, right now. When Joffrey goes crimson at this, Tyrion mocks him and then tells him to use his ears, not his asshole-shaped mouth. Or else, his reign is going to be real, real fucking short. When Joffrey starts to sputter about fear being better than love, Tyrion again mocks Joffrey and tells him it's a pity Stannis and Renly aren't 12-year-old girls. Tyrion then orders Bronn and Timmy to bring Sansa to him. She thinks they'll escort her to her chambers, but instead they take her to the Tower of the Ham. The PTSD kicks in as Sansa's led into the tower that she had last stepped in when her father, quote, fell from grace. Servant girls change her clothes, quote, mouthing meaningless comforts, which I just love that line. As the servants then bathe and clothe Sansa, she thinks that only Sir Dantos tried to help her. And he wasn't even a knight anymore. Tyrion and Sander, they were knights either. The Hound hated knights. I hate them too, Sansa thought. They're no true knights. Not one of them. And she ain't wrong here, man. I mean, after her bathing and clothing, Maester Franken then comes into Sansa and applies a salve on her welts that Boros Blount left on her knees. And then he mixes her some dream wine and encourages her to sleep. And encourages her to sleep. Sansa wakes in the dark, pain ripping through her legs as, he, as she rises. She slips into a robe and starts moving out of her room. When the guards ask her where she's going, she says she's off to the godswood. But no, the guards tell her Sansa is here to stay in her room. So Sansa retreats. As she sits in the room, she realizes that the room feels familiar because this was the room that where Arya stayed in back in the day. And even if all Arya's things had been moved out, the room felt the same. Food gets brought to Sansa, but she waves it off. The servant places the food and drink down the table. As the, two, as the servant departs, Sansa realizes that she's thirsty, though, so she creeps over to the table, every step sending agonizing shots of pain through her legs. Sansa reaches the table, drinks two cups of water, and nibbles an olive, and then there's a knock on the door. Into the room walks Tyrion Lannister, and Sansa immediately asks whether she's his prisoner. Well, no, she's a guest, and Tyrion only wants to talk. Sansa agrees, noticing Tyrion's ugly face. Tyrion asks if the room and board is up to her standards, and Sansa says, yeah, I, I guess. She thanks Tyrion for helping her with that whole business with Joffrey, though. You have a right to know why Joffrey is so wroth, Tyrion said. Six nights gone, your brother fell upon my uncle Stafford and camped with his host at a village called Oxcross, not three days' ride from Casterly Rock. Your northerners won a crushing victory. We received word only this morning. Rob will kill you all, she thought, exulting. It's terrible, my lord. It's just so terrible. My brother's a vile, vile traitor. Tyrion smiles at this, stating that Rob isn't a fawn in all this war and shit. When Sansa asks about an army of wargs, Tyrion rolls his eyes and talks about Lancel being a big fucking idiot, which, true. Most likely, it was only Rob's direwolf that was there during the battle. Speaking of Grey Wind, Rob sent his wolf forward against Stafford Lannister's army while his northmen sneaked into the encampment and cut the horse lines. Those horses then trampled Lannister knights. Stafford was cut down by Lord Rickard Karstark as he was running after his own horse. 
The army melted away in a confusion of fleeing and dead Lannister men. Hundreds were taken captive, hundreds were killed. The survivors claimed that the old gods were marching with Rob. Sansa asks if there was, you know, any sorcery involved, and Tyrion says, nah, no sorcery. Idiot Uncle Stafford didn't even post any fucking sentries. He's a fucking moron. And his army was made of raw recruits. They were easily dispatched by Rob Stark's veteran army. But the Lannisters still hold the Golden Tooth, and Tyrion is un- and Tyrion is unsure how Rob was able to get past that stronghood. How do you do that? We'll find out. Anyway, Sansa, what's up with you and Joffrey? I love him with all his heart, Sansa said at once. Truly? Do you not sound convinced? Even now? My love for his grace is greater than it has ever been. The imp laughed aloud. Well, someone is touching a lie well. You may be grateful for that one day, child. You were still a child, are you not? Or have you flowered? Sansa knows that it's a rude question, but it doesn't seem all that rude as compared to being, you know, stripped naked in front of all of the castle. So she tells Tyrion that she has not had her moon's blood yet. Tyrion says that Sansa should be grateful for that. Regardless, Tyrion isn't planning to marry Joffrey to Sansa anyways. Yes, it was one of Robert Baratheon's better notions, but Joffrey really fucked that one up royally. Sansa thinks she should say something, but she doesn't know what to say. Tyrion notices this and asks if Sansa wants to be free from her betrothal to Joffrey. I... Sansa didn't know what to say. Is this a trick? Will he punish me if I tell the truth? She stared at the dwarf's brutal, bulging brow, the hard black eye, and the shrewd green one, the crooked teeth and wiry beard. And wiry beard. I only want to be loyal. Loyal, the dwarf amused, and far from any Lancers. I could scarce blame you for that. When I was your age, I wanted the same thing. He smiled. They tell me you visit the godswood every day. What do you pray for, Sansa? I pray for Rob's victory and Joffrey's death and for home, for Winterfell. I pray for an end to the fighting. Tyrion replies that the fighting will be over soon enough. Sure, Rob won this battle, but Tywin would settle the issue once and for all. But Sansa thinks that Rob will beat Tywin just like she just like he beat Jamie and Stafford. And Tyrion seems to read her face. He warns her that Oxcross was only one battle, and Tywin isn't Stafford. When Sansa visits the godswood next, Tyrion wants her to pray that Rob has the wisdom to bend the knee. And if Rob bends the knee, Tyrion will send Sansa home. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Tyrion then offers Sansa the safety of the Tower of the Hand to sleep here and some of his own guards to protect her. But Sansa doesn't want that. She thinks if she has Tyrion's men around her, Dantos will never be able to get her away from King's Landing. Sansa sort of lies Tyrion says that the mountain clansmen scare her, but Tyrion brushes her off saying that the clansmen scare him too, but they also scare Joffrey. I would sooner return to my bed, Sansa said. A lie came to her suddenly, but it seemed so right that she blurted out at once. This tower is where my father's men were slain. Their, their ghosts would give me terrible dreams, and I would see their blood wherever I looked. Tyrion Lannister studied her face. I am no stranger to nightmares, Sansa. Perhaps you are wiser than I knew. Permit me at least to escort you safely back to your own chambers. And that is The Clash of Kings, Sansa 3. You know, like you were saying last week about uh, Arya's seventh chapter, I have to say this is my favorite Sansa chapter so far in A Clash of Kings, maybe in so far in A Song of Ice and Fire. What did you think of this chapter, man? Oh, Jeff, we thought we were so clever <laughs> to structure our episodes on this chunk of the Clash of Kings this way, putting those Catalan chapters together. It made so much sense. Catalan 3 and Catalan 4 go together. We'll do the other chapters around them just in a row. Little did we realize that meant we'd be jumping from <laughs> one of the hardest to read scenes in The Song of Ice and Fire, Chiswick's story in the Arya 7, right into another of the hardest to read scenes in The Song of Ice and Fire, Joffrey having Sansa stripped and beaten in public. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a hard road, but putting these chapters together does help illuminate the larger points George is driving at. Like Arya 7, Sansa 3 is a nightmare in service of radicalization, acting as a delegitimizing force aimed at every member of the royal court. As with Chiswick's story, the point is not only that vicious predators are running Westeros, 
It's that everyone else is standing, watching, and doing nothing. Almost everyone, anyway. (laughs) George presents such vivid, detailed horrors to make his audience feel, not just know, but feel that things are rotten in the state of Westeros. Mm, You're absolutely right about that. Things are shitty from the lowest levels to the top levels here. From the highest pillar of the power structure to the kind of middle-low portion of the power structure. Chiswick is just a regular old dude. Jolly old Chiswick, as as talked about. Just just a regular old trooper. Just a soldier man. But, you know, they're still kind of operating in that same sort of rotten structure that is the state of Westeros at this point in the story. It's a great point. And I mean, as I've said, for me, like as I was thinking about this chapter, as I've said a number of times this podcast, you know, I, I, did, I didn't read the books until after season two. So my first impression of the scene derives from season two of the show. So it's fun coming back to this chapter in 2020, some eight years after I saw it on screen and seven years after I read it. All of those nightmarish elements that you were referencing to of people watching a 13-year-old girl beaten and then sexually assaulted, because again, that's what happens. That's what Boris Blunt does. And doing nothing about it are all preserved, even if there are a few interesting changes from book to show. For instance, in the books, Joffrey has Sansa brought to the Lord Bailey. In the show, Joffrey is atop the Iron Throne. In Clash, Sansa spends the evening at the Tower of the Hand where Tyrion and her converse. In the show, they condense it down to Tyrion just talking with Sansa as they exit the throne room. These changes are fine. In reality, I think really good, you know, in changing the setting from the Lower Bailey to the Iron Throne, much more visually appealing. But the visual medium adds something to the text with Jack Gleason, Jerome Flynn, Peter Dinklage, and especially Sophie Turner doing justice to source material that's already excellent with some excellent acting. Sophie Turner's delivery of, I am loyal to Joffrey, my one true love, as she adopts her lady's face with her face still tear streak just hits me. So well done, Game of Thrones. You know, we have this reputation for being people that hate Game of Thrones. We don't. We actually love Game of Thrones. But, you know, this scene particularly was just extraordinarily well done. And, you know, you guys from Game of Thrones, if you're listening to this this episode, maybe you are, I don't know. (laughs) You did well, guys. And that sense of horror that was evident in season two of the show stems from George is writing this chapter back in the mid-90s, and all that horror that we're going to encounter with Sansa's confrontation with Joffrey, it all stems from a foundation that is just mixes, fills us with dread from the very get-go of this chapter. Oh, it's a great scene in the show when Joffrey yells, what's his line, if we want Rob Stock to hear us, we're going to have to scream louder, or louder. something like that. Yeah. It's It's wonderful. But yeah, from the very first words of this chapter, the tension and dread that defined the previous two Sansa chapters in this book have been ramped up to a sickening degree. The first words, the longer you keep him waiting, the worse it will go for you. And we don't need to be told who him is, because Joffrey looms so large over these chapters. Every action Sansa takes, even the smallest gesture, is taken with Joffrey in mind because he has power over her and has repeatedly used it violently. It's the prison of the abuse victim wherein everything must be designed to please and placate the abuser. Not even the victim is focused first and foremost on her own well-being. Her thoughts are so frantic and desperate. As with Chiswick's story, we're in this state of painful unease that, as the chapter goes on, achieves catharsis in the most hideous way possible. And like this story starts with Chiswick, we know that shit's going to go bad from the get-go, right? And it starts with George really builds up our dread as the story kicks off. They had started from the hands turning. They were now showing up at this inn. The river was too high, so they had to sit there, and they were all annoyed and angry. And these are the types of people that do terrible, horrible shit, so we know that things are about to go bad here. Same sort of feeling we get here from this from the perspective of Sansa Stark as we're about to approach Joffrey. And I think something's interesting about Joffrey that I kind of caught in this reread. The appearances of Joffrey and Clash are 
pretty limited. I mean, and we only see him in a, a couple times. And I want to say this is similar to how George uses the others in the story. It's an effective mm. use of the monster. Back in, I think, like episode zero or episode one, whatever it was, uh, I talked about the others as, quote, you know, the monsters on the margins. And I think George is, again, using that same tactic with Joffrey. Joffrey's the monster here. Though we saw Joff briefly in, you know, Tyrion 4 and Sansa 2, we haven't had a face-to-face interaction with him since Sansa's first chapter. You know, keeping monsters mostly off page makes their sudden appearance on page really effective and really scary when we know we're about to encounter them. So when we know from the very first sentence of this chapter that we're going to meet our monster, our dread as readers, it matches Sansa's. I think you make a great point. Joffrey kind of hangs in an omnipresent way over this book because, of course, he's the king on the Iron Throne and Tyrion has the most chapters and he's always talking and thinking about Joffrey, even if Joffrey isn't present. But the shock of his real presence doing Joffrey shit is just, it gives you chills And Sansa, in response, she armors herself in courtesy. Oh, I got to flatter Joffrey. Oh, he's going to like me in this dress, this color. This will please him. Because this is the only tool available to her. And this is where George combines his social critique with his genre commentary. They kind of become one and the same thing. When her story began, Sansa thought of her lady's toolbox, courteous words, fine clothes, etc., as a set of signifiers that would unlock the good life for her to bring her to a life like Queen Cersei. And now these signifiers are in tatters, papering over the abyss that is her life in King's Landing. The stained glass window shattered, but the thing is, Sansa has only its shards with which to defend herself. She doesn't have another worldview, another guardian, another tool that she can devote herself to. It's still just courtesy. So George is showing us how the songs and stories lied to Sansa and how she has to forge a new identity out of the pieces of the old one left behind. She has to rely on the idea of the courteous lady, even though it's not something she really believes in anymore the way she used to. But it's not enough for Sansa to save herself from Joffrey. He doesn't care about what actions she takes, because it's not her actions he's holding her responsible for. As Sandor says, when Sansa says, tell me what I've done. And Sandor says, not you, your kingly brother. You're just a stand-in for Rob, as far as Joffrey is concerned. As Sansa herself admitted in Sansa 1 in this book, Joffrey's actions depend on whether he decides to play the gallant or not, and she has no control over that. If he doesn't decide to play the gallant, then nice words and a pretty dress won't save her. In fact, I think they might only serve to enrage him further, because at some level, Joffrey knows that Sansa's courtesy is a lie, just as Sandor and Tyrion do. And when he's in a good mood, he's fine with that, because that means she's playing the part. She respects him, she fears him. But when he's in a bad mood... That dishonesty, I think, just enrages him and just get, makes him worse. Sansa's only two values is, as a hostage are that her life means that Jamie stays alive and much more distantly that she's betrothed to Joffrey, though no one seems to be taking that seriously at this point. None of those things have value to Joffrey, who both doesn't know that Jamie is his father, and to get to that sadism angle, to get back to it rather, he views other humans as playthings to torture or murder. And the only thing that really cows Joffrey from outright murdering Sansa is his mom, which, yeah, shit's real bad when wine drunk, already child murdering, you know, regicidal Cersei is the moderating influence on her son, Joffrey. But there's something else about Sansa's hostage situation that really sticks out on reread for this chapter. And that's how much the Lannisters are trusting the Starks to be the, quote, good guys in the whole hostage situation. Consider what Sansa thinks as she's being led to the throne. God's be good. Don't let it be the Kingslayer. If Rob had harmed Jamie, if Rob had harmed Jamie Lannister, it would mean her life. This line really struck me. 
At some level, the Lancers, and I don't just mean Joffrey, I mean all the Lancers, are trusting the Starks don't engage in reciprocity against their hostage, Jaime, while also being prepared to far exceed the reciprocity of treating their own hostages, namely Sansa. To put it in blunt terms, Joffrey and all the Lancers, again, all of them are have spared some culpability, expect Jaime to continue receiving gentle treatment, gentle... They expect Jamie to continue receiving gentler treatment that they give to Sansa. But if Jamie gets harmed in any possible way, they're going to fucking kill Sansa. This hypocrisy, I don't, I don't know if that's the right word here, it just adds another galling glare to the atrocious behavior that the Lancers, all of them at some level, inflict on Sansa. The Lancers are always pushing the boundaries of these social norms. And one of the main effects of that is it makes it impossible to trust them, and it makes it impossible to make a deal with them, and it makes it impossible to make peace with them, as we're going to see in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Because why would you trust them to hold to that peace when they've proven willing to lie and shatter norms right to your face? And yeah, it's, it's especially noticeable in, in the area of Jamie because you get into this question of like, oh, you know, how can good go up against evil when evil will break any rule, but good feels bound by its rules? Isn't good like unilaterally disarming this age-old question? I think Rob comes to the right conclusion of you offer to make peace with the Lannisters, but he also knows he has to kind of force them to come to the table by making war on the Westerlands, to force them to sue to peace, force them to come to the table because he knows he can't really trust them. And I think that's that's the appropriate balance to strike. But I agree with what you're saying earlier about the, the visually striking nature of this scene in the show. I think the throne room makes much more sense as a setting for the medium of television. You want the big, visually dramatic, recognizable room with the Iron Throne and Joffrey atop it. That, that'll, that'll catch the attention. That makes perfect sense. But I like in the books when it, you know, it's, the visuals are more going on in your head and you can kind of play with, with, with smaller scenarios. <laughs> I like that it happens in the lower Bailey because it captures how this is both uh, official king business and also kind of off the books. Mm -hmm. Like Joffrey is staging this here precisely because... I think he doesn't want Tyrion or Cersei to walk in. Unfortunately for him, Tyrion does, but I think Joffrey's trying to avoid that, which he couldn't if this was in the throne room. So on the one hand, this is the king ordering his Kingsguard around, but on the other, they're like doing it in the equivalent of the Red Keep gym. Like it's not it's not front and central. And then the casualness of it is part of what makes it devastating, as with Chiswick's story in Arya 7, that this is just happening in a random location. It's not even important. And Joffrey tells Sansa right away. That again, there are no strategies that will save her. Kneeling won't save you now. That's what he says. And what a chilling thing that is for a king to say. Because kneeling to a king is supposed to be how you save yourself from them. <laughs> Joffrey will say much the same thing after the Red Wedding. I want them all dead. I won't have any generous terms for the people who surrender. Joffrey simply cannot rule in peacetime. Because for him, violence is a feature of kingship, not a bug. Violence is what he's in this for. He does not want this to end. Sansa tries to appeal to, like, the one kernel of rationality she imagines might be left in Joffrey's brain. Look, I'm not Rob. I didn't do what Rob did. I am not responsible. But Joffrey just needs someone upon whom to vent his rage because, well, this wasn't supposed to happen because... Well, he would have beat Rob in the Winterfell Yard, damn it, if they'd been allowed to fight. He feels impotent, humiliated, less than a king, less than a man. And like so many characters in this story, and men in real life, he takes that feeling out on a woman. I think it's a great point you bring up about that Joffrey simply cannot rule in peacetime. It's the same argument that you had brought about Chiswick, in that he, this is the guy who was doing terrible stuff when it was when it was peacetime in Westeros. And something I was thinking about, too, about Joffrey's attitude. It's This is where... I read Joffrey is acting like Robert Ritzmall. No, uh, he's not the biological son of Robert Baratheon, but his idealization of his quote-unquote father has 
altered his psychology, his already altered psychology. And I'm reminded of that night after the first day of the hands tourney from Sansa's second chapter in A Game of Thrones, where Sansa witnesses Robert screaming at Cersei. And then we learn from the next chapter that Robert was enraged because Cersei told him that he couldn't participate in the melee. I mean, Sansa notices Joffrey having a, quote, queer look in his eyes after Robert's outburst at the tourney. And look, as much as Joff is a sadistic shit, we can't discount the psychological impact of Cersei's coddling. And more importantly, for our purposes here, Robert's violent outburst against his mom when she makes him feel emasculated. And so Joffrey, despite, again, not being Robert's biological son, is bringing all of the worst learned behavior of Robert and exercises them here against an innocent Sansa Stark. I think that's a great point. You know, Joffrey has this this weird hero worship of Robert but also takes all his worst traits and, and ramps them up. And I think you can you can see that here. And it's, you know, Robert had all these enablers and coddlers around him who didn't seem to care that he was falling from grace and even wanted to encourage it because it helped their plans. I always think of that moment during that scene when Robert's screaming at Cersei drunk and Renly comes up to offer him, what, another glass of wine? Mm-hmm. Just keep drinking, Robert. This only helps me out. And you see the same thing with Joffrey on just a, a much worse scale, of course. Because even armed with a crossbow, even full of murderous rage, Joffrey on his own would not be nearly as dangerous if grown-ass adults didn't do what he tells them to. And that starts even before Boros Blount starts beating Sansa. It starts with the court flunkies surrounding Joffrey, cheering him on, laughing at Sansa, refusing to meet her eye. These people are the problem, even more than Joffrey himself. And the corruption of the court continues with Lancel. Sansa thinks to herself she'd always thought him comely and well-spoken, like a knight out of the songs as he presents himself. But we know that Lancel is a kingslayer, and a spy twice over, with barely a shred of honor in him, so it's no surprise to us that he turns so viciously on Sansa here. He vomits up some just absurd propaganda about Rob that gives even the phrase at White Harbor a run for their money, (laughs) all while looking at Sansa with loathing she has done nothing to earn. Now look, Lancel is not the sharpest tool in the box, but he probably knows better than the story he's telling about Rob. I don't think he honestly believes this is true. It doesn't matter, though, because this is the narrative that Joffrey believes. This is the one that feeds his anger. This is the one that makes Sansa look inhuman, like her brother, like a wolf. Hence the talk of the direwolves, dragging us back to that primal scene at Derry in Book 1, in which Sansa's relationship to both Joffrey and her family were just changed forever. Sansa lost her wolf and her father leaving her vulnerable to Joffrey. Whereas he can't get at Rob, Rob is out there with his wolf and his army surrounding him, kicking Lannister butt. So Joffrey heaps it all on Sansa because she's defenseless and orders her brutally beaten by his Kingsguard. These are grown fighting men, armed, armored, not holding back as they strike a defenseless child. It's appalling. It's sickening. It's infuriating. We're seeing Chiswick's story from Arya 7 again, but from the inside. How it feels to have your world fall apart in a blaze of pain and blood while the crowd cheers. Not content with hurting her, Joffrey orders her stripped naked. Because there is more than just anger at Rob at work here. Joffrey is getting aroused. It's the clearest evidence that Joffrey is a full-on sadist. His sexual urge is connected to violence and absolute power over others. And here, I think, is where the parallel to the Mad King becomes unmistakable. We learn later that Aerys could eventually only become aroused by burning people alive, and that Danny was conceived via rape under those circumstances. Like Aerys, Joffrey is as blunt an illustration of irresponsible power as you can imagine, someone utterly unworthy of authority, using it only to cause pain. And like Aerys, Joffrey is aided and abetted in his cruelty by all these well-bred, well-dressed people just standing by, or worse, helping him do it. 
I love the detail that Sansa sticks to Sandor's non-burned side as she walks with him, because that's the side untouched by monsters like Gregor, like Joffrey, like Eris, who so loved burning people alive. Mm, that's so well said, man. I, and I mean, as I was reading through some of your notes, I was reminded of that show-only line by Jamie from season one about what the enabling class did while Eris Targaryen burned Rickard Stark and strangled Brandon Stark alive. 500 men just stood there and watched. All the great knights of the Seven Kingdoms. You think anyone said a word? Lift a finger? No, Lord Stark. 500 men in his room, and this room was silent as a crypt. Except for the screams, of course, and the Mad King laughing. I mean, that, that's a haunting line that stuck with me so hard that I thought it came from A Song of Ice and Fire. It doesn't. It actually comes from Game of Thrones Season 1, and I only found out I'm doing the research for this. So, again, Season 1, greater than sign Game of Thrones... Don't, don't look at me like that. Okay, fine. You can look at me Jeff like that. Jeff has always got to push the envelope, folks. This is what he does, and we just got to love him and support him for it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Fly forward, my butterfly. I appreciate all the love and support. I feel embraced by your by your very strong <laughs> arms. But there's also Good. something especially stomach-churning about this scene from Sansa 3, whereas the quote is, Boros shoved a meaty hand down the front of Sansa's bodice and gave a hard yank. The silk came tearing away, bearing her to the waist. Sansa covered her breasts with her hands. And here's the important part. She could hear sniggers far off and cruel. The, the silence that Sho Jamie remembers when the, his Mad King had committed atrocity has been replaced by the laughter of this enabling class. And, you know, we're talking about, and Ned references as well, about the kings are being the greatest of all time back when he was a young man. All of those guys, though, stood there silent while people were burned to death and strangled to death by Eris Targaryen as he laughed at it. That's it's a contrast what we're seeing here of people laughing and kind of having a good time at watching this young girl get beaten and sexually assaulted in, 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 the, in the lower bailey. And, and I keep saying this, but George is layering the horror and abuse here with just that extra layer, that extra aspect, which makes it that much more enraging for the reader, for me, and that much more humiliating for Sansa Stark in this chapter. As usual in A Song of Ice and Fire, it is only the outcasts, the marginalized and belittled, the cripples, the bastards, the broken things, who at least try to do the right thing. Sandor declares enough and gives Sansa his cloak. Dantos goes further than that and mock beats Sansa to try and sate Joffrey with laughter. They can't bear to watch this occur. The not-knights are living up to the knightly vows far more than the actual knights, who are concerned only with subservience to power. It is Tyrion, the ugly pariah dwarf, who steps in to save Sansa and call out Joffrey and Boros Blount on their dishonorable behavior. To further emphasize the point, George flanks Tyrion with Bronn and Timot, both of them lowborn, neither of them knights, not yet anyway. <laughs> Bronn only underlines it further by scorning the, quote, pretty white cloaks of the Kingsguard. Bronn might be ruthless scum, but at least he's not pretending to be something he's not. And maybe the best illustration of this image versus reality theme is how Sansa thinks to herself that Sandor's scratchy wool cloak feels finer than any velvet she's ever worn. First book, Sansa, would have been all about the velvet, all about the surface appearance, but now she knows better. She perceives the substance. Sandor's cloak feels so fine because it is protecting her, whereas the world of fancy dresses and story and song left her vulnerable. Sansa is coming to a more clear understanding of how power actually works, and so a more clear understanding of what will and will not keep her safe. That's, again, really well said. And just to add just a little bit more onto your excellent point about Sansa finding the fancy world, leaving her vulnerable, 
consider the effort that Sansa uses at the start of this chapter to get into an ill-fitting dress and smoothing it out and fixing all of the knots and things on her dress. And then a knight of the Kingsguard, again, the ostensible face of chivalry, rips her dress because a king ordered it to, be, ordered it to happen. But Sander's white cloak protects her honor and keeps her warm against the cold, empty void that is the face of the High Lord's ladies and sword swords of the court of King Joffrey laughing. I mean, I, I, I love, and this is just a, a, note, a detail I noticed, I just love how George uses the different types of clothing for Sansa to help symbolize how she's starting to understand the real face of chivalry. It's not in the titles. It's not in being a member of the Kingsguard. It's not being a high lord or high lady of the court. It's in doing the right thing that makes people actually chivalrous in the story. Well said, sir. And yeah, we see that very much in the aftermath of this this horrible event. Sansa enters a fugue state as she's being whisked away from the Lower Bailey. She describes it as feeling like she's in a dream. Now, Arya also disassociates in Arya 7, while Whis is beating her after she hears Chiswick's story. Sansa, though, has no assassin to strike back for her, so all she can do is try to recover, inside and out. And it's significant that George has her do so in the Tower of the Hand. This is a literal regression for Sansa. We've been brought back to where she lived in book one, to the moment she describes as her father falling from grace. And oh, what a telling choice of words that is. It hints at a descent beyond the political and the physical. It is the death of an ideal, the ruination of a way of looking at the world. It's as if in her disconnected state, Sansa has slipped the bonds of time and gone back not only to the Tower of the Hand, but to the person she used to be when she lived there. She's on the other side now of her family's fall from grace, and so she knows that the comforting words spoken by the servants are meaningless. She might not have known that before. She knows that the maester is bullshitting about everything feeling better in the morning. She might have believed him before. It's as if George is deliberately highlighting how Sansa's character is still progressing, even as her external circumstances, prisoner in King's Landing, stay the same for multiple books. Above all, Sansa now realizes the point I made earlier. Joffrey isn't actually the main problem. He's a symptom, not the disease. The disease is a corrupt, detached elite, untethered from the values they proclaim to uphold, the values of the stories and songs. As Sansa says to herself, all she could see were the faces in the Bailey. Not Joffrey's face, the faces of the people mm. watching. Sansa doesn't put their names down on a kill list like her sister, mm -hmm. but it's the same moment of radicalization, the realization that the center does not hold and the system doesn't provide justice. This passage from this chapter in particular is one of the more blunt thesis statements in the Song of Ice and Fire, just like we saw in Arya 7. Knights are sworn to defend the weak, protect women, and fight for the right, but none of them did a thing. Only Sir Dantos had tried to help, and he was no longer a knight. No more than the imp was, nor the hound. The hound hated knights. I hate them too, Sansa thought. They are no true knights, not one of them. The political core of a Song of Ice and Fire, in my opinion is a deep skepticism that power can ever be used for good, coupled with an abiding belief that values are being upheld on the margins by people who do not fit the social status, physical appearance, temperament, etc., popularly associated with those values. This is refracted through fantasy as a genre through the shorthand of stories and songs, which in the Song of Ice and Fire stand in for the manufactured consensus that beauty equals good, that the nobles are literally noble, that Yorin was a dirty re rebel who deserved what he had coming to him, etc. Character growth in A Song of Ice and Fire is consistently linked to shedding one's naive, detached worldview rooted in stories and songs, working instead to uphold the values contained within them, but in the context of a more realistic world. Sansa knows now 
that knights do not uphold their vows, the way stories and songs say they just automatically will by virtue of being knights. Often as not, they do the exact opposite. The vows are being upheld by the people not bound by them, an irony which is both pessimistic and optimistic. Pessimistic because there's only so much the likes of Davos and Brienne can do to change a system that will barely even let them in the door. Optimistic, because this theme demonstrates that power is never absolute, that even the shittiest political, economic, and social systems cannot quench the human spirit. And we see that with Sandor Clegane offering his cloak to Sansor, crying out because he, he, he can't stand what's being done to her. And Sansa feels a real kinship with him here. It's not just gratitude for his help, although that's part of it. <laughs> it's a genuine philosophical connection, part of her arc, that she now understands what he was talking about. And what does Sander have, or doesn't have, rather, that everyone else in the Kingsguard have? He doesn't have the Sir in front of his name. Fuck your Sir, Boros. Fuck your Sir, man. I mean, it's so powerful that Sander is the one who is standing up to the abuses of power being committed by people who absolutely know better at some sort of mental conscientious level. The Knights of the Kingsguard, as we talked about in Sansa 1, Eris Oakheart, He's he knows better. He knows that what Joffrey is ordering him to do is wrong, but he's still going to do it because he has to obey the king, right? Well, Sandra is showing that you don't have to obey the king, that you can contradict the king when the king is in the wrong. And that's something that Tyrion is going to bring up later in A Clash of Kings and especially in A Storm of Swords about how Joffrey is a 13-year-old kid and he needs to be reined in by adults who know better. And that's why it's so vital that characters like Sandor, like Sandor Clegane, like Sir Dantos, formerly Sir Dantos Hollard, and now Tyrion Lannister are here representing what actual human, what the human spirit can actually achieve. Namely, they can protect the innocent and do the things that the knights should be doing and are not doing in this story. Beautifully said. And how do we think about Tyrion in regards to that? I mean, this is a Sansa chapter, of course, but it's also a very important story beat for Tyrion. So I thought he should get his own, like, separate slice of the conversation <laughs> in this episode. He enters the chapter exactly like a hero in a song should. Right? Bringing the proceedings to a halt with his stern, authoritative voice, demanding to know what's going on. He shames the villains for their lack of honor, and he brings the victim under his personal protection. Sansa then links him with Dantos and Sandor in her mind as protectors, upholding the values of knighthood, despite not being knights themselves. So far, Tyrion's coming out of this looking pretty good. Like he's finally doing justice <laughs> as he promised he would as Hand of the King. But then George starts undercutting that image. Sansa asks right away if she's Tyrion's prisoner. He replies that she is his guest. But no, she's closer to the mark. She is still not free. She is still a hostage. Even as Tyrion insists that Sansa is not his prisoner, George makes sure to, at that moment, mention the chain around his neck. Hint, hint. Mm -hmm. She's in chains. Tyrion speaks gently to Sansa and doesn't have her beaten. And yes, this makes him a significantly better individual than Joffrey. That's clear and it's worth emphasizing. But in terms of power, in terms of how he uses his authority... He is implicated in Joffrey's actions because everything he does is working to keep Joffrey on the Iron Throne. It's doing stuff like this. Exactly. And, you know, as much as we I praised Sandra Clegane a moment ago, consider, too, that he is still Joffrey's dog. He is still going to be the person who's going to go out in the Battle of the Blackwater and kill a bunch of guys who are supporting the rightful king. He is still the person that kills Micah back in a Game of Thrones because Joffrey ordered it. Dantos Hollard is also framed nobly in this chapter. But he's not actually working on Sansa's behalf. He's working on behalf of Littlefinger, as we find out in A Storm of Swords. And now we turn to Tyrion. 
unstated here in this chapter, but important to keep in mind as we talk about Tyrion's comforting words to Sansa, is that Tyrion is still playing openly in court that he has both Stark girls as his hostage. And let's not forget how Tyrion spoke about Sansa's status, spoke about Sansa's status back in Tyrion's sixth chapter. Tyrion glanced towards Sansa and felt a stab of pit as he said, "Until such time as he frees my brother, Jean." Until such time as Rob frees my brother Jamie unharmed, they shall remain here as hostages. How well they are treated depends on him. And as you say, Tyrion is treating Sansa better here, but Tyrion implicitly legitimizes Joffrey's abuse of Sansa. And I mean, I don't think that Tyrion was thinking of Joffrey stripping stripping Sansa naked and beating her and, the, and having his Kingsguard beat her here. But consider that Tyrion is stating that Sansa's general treatment back in Tyrion 6 in King's Landing is predicated first upon Jaime being freed, and then secondly, again, the first part is important, and secondly, and not primarily, on how well Jaime is being treated by the Starks at River Run. Yeah, Tyrion really gives the game away here when he describes Joffrey as his bane, similar to Rob's role in Tywin's life. That's how Tyrion frames it. He's equating his king and nephew to the enemy because of how much trouble Joffrey is giving him with issues like this. And Tyrion also admits that he, too, wanted to be far away from the Lannisters as a child, just like Sansa. He's practically acknowledging here that he feels more of a kinship to the Starks than his own family. But even so, his authority to help her, or keep Shay secret, or do any of the things he wants to do, is rooted in Joffrey's crown. If Joffrey isn't king, then Tyrion isn't hand. Like Sandor, Tyrion notes that Sansa has been taught to lie well. He knows she's lying, and yet he's complimenting her for her lying skills anyway. <laughs> Why? Well, because the point of her lying in her position is not that her words are believed, but the fact that she's willing to tell this lie signals compliance and submission. These lies communicate fear. I am afraid of you, so I will say flattering things that I transparently do not believe. And that's enough for Joffrey and Cersei, even as they scorn and abuse her for it. Because as Joffrey says in this chapter, they believe that fear is the source of all power. That fear is better than love. Joffrey points to Sansa's trembling, bloody body and says, that's proof that I'm a good king. <laughs> as with Chiswick's story, the failure of the system is laid bare. And Tyrion is quite correct in his counterarguments. Fear is no way to win people over in the long run. And regardless, Stannis and Renly are not remotely afraid of you, kid. <laughs> Tyrion is also right, as I said, that Joffrey is headed down a path very similar to that of Mad King Aerys. But declaring these things to Joffrey in public, backed up by threats and insults, is just Tyrion signing his own death warrant when Joffrey comes of age. All of this is going to be used as damning evidence against Tyrion in his trial for Joffrey's murder come a storm of swords. Hell, we know he didn't do it, and it's still convincing. It's very telling that Tyrion's trump card against Joffrey in this scene is the threat of getting Cersei involved. That's the only way Tyrion really gets Joffrey to back down. And that accidentally reveals the weakness of his own position. Now, Cersei is consistently smarter about how to handle the Starks than Joffrey, if only because she cares more about preserving Jaime's life than he does, as you say. She would put a stop to this, and judging from Joffrey's flushed face when Tyrion threatens to bring in Cersei, he knows it. But Cersei is also the woman who prepares to execute Sansa if Stannis takes the city. Cersei is the one who taught Joffrey all this horrible shit to begin with. So that is the very definition of a short-term solution. It helps save Sansa's skin, and I'm very glad about that. Mm -hmm. But Joffrey keeps getting worse and worse, and eventually he's going to be an adult. Tywin will also confront this intractable problem after the Red Wedding when Tyrion refers to Joffrey as Aerys III and sees that 
Tywin is really actually freaked out about this. Even as Tyrion tries to heed his best angels in this chapter, even as he does demonstrably rule more sensibly and kindly than his sister and her brat, he cannot get around this paradox of his bane, his nemesis, being the king he's working so hard to keep in power. You just can't get around that. So you get contradictions like Tyrion saying, oh, he doesn't mean for Sansa to every marry Joffrey because there's no reconciling Stark and Lannister. But also saying that he will send Sansa home after Rob bends the knee. But wait, why would Rob bend the knee anytime <laughs> soon if there's no reconciling Stark and Lannister? And if he just won another victory and the Lannisters could lose King's Landing to either Baratheon while Tywin marches west against Rob? Why on earth would Rob bend the knee in that situation? What Tyrion knows but doesn't want to admit to Sansa is that really their ultimate defense against Rob is her. Mm. That's why he needs her alive and well, not because he cares about her, not because he wants to do justice, but because if the Lannisters ever want Jaime back and the ability to sue for peace against Rob, they need Sansa in one piece to do it. And as Dantos points out to Sansa at the end of this book, ending the betrothal does not protect Sansa from Joffrey. He can still beat her and rape her and do whatever he wants, even if they never get married, even if he's married to someone else, because of the same dynamic we see in this chapter. He's the king, and even the adults who know better draw their power from his. When Tyrion in full hero mode confronts Boros Blount about beating Sansa, it's a powerful moment, because as with Chiswick's death, one of the people responsible for making Westeros hell is being called out on it. It's very cathartic when Tyrion tells Blount to shut his fucking child-abusing mouth or he will have Bronn kill him. There is a reason the show took that, like, line for line. <laughs> it's extremely great stuff. But what does Blount say in response? That he is obeying his king. How can Tyrion respond to that when his smartest moves merely serve to prop Joffrey up above better king, ensuring that men like Boros Blount will continue to obey him? Tyrion is keeping this going. He has no real defense beyond that, that he is operating on behalf of his father as handed the king in King's Landing, and he's and he's serving Joffrey, as he puts it in his in the previous Tyrion chapter, that, you know, Cersei is the regent, but he serves as the hand of the king. He serves Joffrey, his nephew. They would have very similar genetic codes together. It's it's all just really convoluted and, and interesting how George drives this dynamic forward of Joffrey and Tyrion's relationship continue to devolve and get worse and worse and worse. At the same time, Tyrion is the one who is serving this kid who, as you put it really well, is likely when he gets to be an adult, is going to kill the shit out of Tyrion for all the terrible things that terrible justified things that Tyrion has done to him over the course of the first two books of the story, three books before Joffrey buys it. I think it's interesting here too, the point you bring up about Rob bending the knee and that Tyrion seems really kind of blasé about that. And he's like, oh yeah, well, Rob just won a victory. We're we're good to go, right? We can, you, you'll be part of the peace till we actually work out the end because we're actually going to win the war. What is the evidence that the Lancers are in the process of winning this war? They've lost every battle. They've got enemies on every single side. As we pointed out last week about Hall, Tywin has one direction to retreat, and that's to King's Landing, and he can't go anywhere besides that. You know, Tywin is going to make the calculation in just a few Arya in just a few chapters from now, in Arya's eighth chapter, that he needs to move west in order to secure something resembling victory for Team Lannister. And it's only by the skin of his teeth, as we'll talk about towards the end of this episode, that the Lannisters end up eking out a victory against the Starks and the Baratheons in this story. But that still leaves Sansa Stark here in the middle of everything. 
think Tyrion and Joffrey are at you know daggers at each other. Cersei is somewhere over there attempting to keep Sansa <laughs> alive just to you know maintain Jamie's survival, and that leaves Sansa in an extraordinarily vulnerable position. But what's interesting in this chapter is that she is advancing both psychologically and as a character and terms of dealing with her really, really shitty circumstances that she finds herself in. Obviously, Sansa's back on her heels. She doesn't have much power, and she doesn't have access to nearly as much information about everything we were talking about as the reader, but her instincts are serving her well. I think she really shows off how far she's come at the very end of the chapter, when a brilliant manipulation comes to her as pure instinct. Tyrion offers to let her stay in the Tower of the Hand, and she thinks to herself, no, I can't stay here. I gotta have access to the Godswood, or Sir Dantos isn't gonna be able to get me out of King's Landing. I have to come up with some reason I can go back to, to my old apartments. And so she pretends to be more naive, more sheltered, more childish than she really is. She pretends to be afraid of ghosts in the Tower of the Hand, the ghosts of her father's men so she can preserve her hopes to escape. She evokes the ghost of her child self mm. to preserve the goals of her adult self. That's good. She's, she's essentially wearing her younger self as a mask to serve these larger political ends of denying the Lannisters her as a hostage. And it works. It strikes at the heart of the kinship Tyrion feels for the Starks, that as a child, he was more like them than his fellow Lannisters. He has ghosts, too, that he carries with him, and so he identifies with Sansa in this moment, even though she's bullshitting him. And, of course, it's one more great parallel with Arya, that she, too, has towers that may or may not be haunted by ghosts over in Harrenhal. And in both cases, with Arya in Harrenhal, Sansa in the Red Keep, whether the ghosts are actually there matters less than our characters' relationships to them. And there are certainly differences in their circumstances, of course, still. Arya has to work, which Sansa does not. Sansa has to deal with being watched and overheard and observed more than uh, than Arya does. Arya gets a guardian, Jock and Hagar, who can do anything. Maybe too much. <laughs> Sansa gets guardians who can't help her even when they're genuinely trying their best. But the characters themselves run parallel. Arya is the ghost in Harrenhal now, and Sansa is spinning her own ghost stories now. The Stark sisters are growing up in A Clash of Kings. I love the detail that Sansa is in Arya's old room, just to emphasize the parallels between the sisters, even as they get farther apart. They have this physical space in common, because they are sharing a mental and emotional space. They are experiencing the same revelation. They are hundreds of miles away from each other, but the Stark sisters are still side by side where it counts. And that's something I really love about their stories going forward. I love that too, man. I think it's really good that we have these two sisters... And the way we sequence these episodes that we had Arya's chapter then followed immediately by Sansa's chapters, because it's clear that George is drawing specific, clear parallels between their storylines and making it interesting that we have these two really different circumstances, just as shitty as these, as the others, and are still they're still ending up finding up ways to survive all of this. I, I love the the little detail here. And I don't know if this is intentional on George's part, but I love the detail that Sansa is doing something interesting that the Lannisters don't understand. Because as we talked about for Tyrion Lannister, he is consistently valuing the short-term political gain over the long-term gain. What Sansa is doing here is basically being like, I am willing to take the abuse that Joffrey, that Cersei, that all of these Kingsguard and all of these hangers-on for Joffrey can do for the at the short term for the long term gain of getting the fuck out of King's Landing. And that's just really, really strong and powerful on Sansa's part. And it's kind of similar to what Arya is doing in Harrenhal, taking the short term shitty circumstance and working it for the long term of getting herself the fuck out of Harrenhal and back someday to Winterfell. Damn straight. But now, of course, 
we get to the part of the episode that you've been waiting for, sir. <laughs> the Battle of Oxcross, the most prominent off-screen battle in A Song of Ice and Fire. It also deserves its own little separate section of this episode. So what does your military mind make of Rob's glorious victory at Oxcross, Jeff? Well, first of all, we have to do the chant. Battle app. Battle, battle app, 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 battle. battle. App. Yes, it's it's so good. Yes, oh my gosh, yes. This is um, one of those hell yeah moments that we get here, and of course it's framed as all of the Lancers being like Rob was the evil villain in this case, but all of us as readers were like, fuck yeah, Rob, go get him. So. Rob Stark, as we know at the start of Clash of Kings, is sitting himself in River Run, kind of determining how he's going to move. Brendan Tully comes bringing word that Stafford Lancer is gathering a host out in the West, and Rob makes the decision that he is going to go somewhere. Catelyn thinks that he's going to go to Hall, but no, he ain't going to Hall. He's going West. And this is fascinating to me how Rob gets into the Westerlands, and it's just almost as fascinating to me as the actual battles that he fought out in the Westerlands themselves. So as Tyrion notes in this chapter, the Golden Tooth remains in Lancer hands. So how did Rob Stark get past the Golden Tooth? And again, this is an aspect that puzzles Tyrion Lancer, the only aspect in his mind. And Martin Rivers, a fray bastard, provides the explanation in Catelyn's fifth chapter in Clash of Kings. How did the king ever take the tooth? Sir Proven Frey asked his bastard brother. That's a hard, strong keep, and it commands the hill road. He never took it. He slipped around it in the night. It said the direwolf showed him the way, that gray wind of his. The beast sniffed out a goat track that wound down a defile and up along a beneath a ridge, a crooked and stony way, yet wide enough for men riding single file. The Lancers in their watchtower got not so much a glimpse of them. Ironically, it's, it's interesting. So Tyrion is a little wrong, and Joffrey is a little right about whether sorcery, sorcery slash, mag, slash magic was involved. In so much as Rob was likely working Greywind, and the magical bond between wolf and man allowed Rob to find the goat path that led them into the Westerlands undetected. And as for using that goat path, I, we see George. I, George is borrowing a bit from history here, and seemingly two major characters, Alexander the Great and Hannibal Baracus. As Steve now has written pretty conclusively and extensively, Rob Stark using a goat path to get around a stronghold has hallmarks of Alexander the Great during the Battle of the Sogdian? Sogdian? Sogdian Rock. In that battle, Alexander the Great ordered 300 of his men up a mountainous goat path to bypass the Bactrian fortress known as the Sigodin Rock, thus leading to the fortress's surrender. But I'd like to think that George is also borrowing a bit from Hannibal's legendary passage into, the, into Italy over the Alps and his usage of a way that the Romans never expected them to use, and suddenly Hannibal is in the lowlands of Italy and threatens Rome itself. So those are just some historical examples of what Rob might have been what George might have been basing Rob's actions off of. Now we get to the Battle of Oxcross themselves. And first off, when we talked about the Battle of Oxcross, the, my favorite part of this is how badly the, the Lancers are operating at a command level in this battle. And none are operating more stupidly than Stafford, the dumbasses I'm calling him. I mean, before we even start unpacking the battle, we have to briefly talk about our undearly departed Stafford Lancer. <laughs> So if you recall from The World of Ice and Fire, Sir Stafford Lancer was both cousin and brother-in-law to Tywin, having been a potential younger brother to Joanna, Tywin's, Tywin's wife. And no one thinks he's hot shit. I mean, when he's taken prisoner by Ellen Tarbeck to effect a hostage ex exchange in the lead up to the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion, Tywin adv advised his dad to just, you know, murder the Rain Tarbeck prisoners have and let Stafford die. He's not worth the shit. And both Jamie and Tywin both think he's an idiot as, as Tyrion's and Jamie and Tywin both think that Stafford's an idiot as Tyrion says in this chapter and Jamie will relate in A Storm of Swords. But he ends up in command of the Western's army because who else did the Lancers have on the bench to raise an army out in the West? No one. And Stafford immediately makes a botch of things by assuming he's safe out in the West. And I, and I get it at some level. He's got the golden tooth to block any movement to the West, and Rob Stark has Tywin to deal with at Harrenhal. 
But at another level, this is just lazy, shitty leadership on Stafford's part. And he should have known better, given how Rob Stark's army has materialized at the worst unexpected spots already at both the Whispering Wood and at the Battle of the Camps at River Run. And Stafford knows this because part of his army is comprised of the remnants of Jamie's force led by Sir Forley Prester. And George commented this in his Sospeak Martin from the early 2000s, in which he said, I expect that Sir Forley Prester sent many of his men down to Sir Stafford, blooded veterans to help train the raw green levies. Of course, that didn't work out too well for Sir Stafford. And I just imagine like Sir Foley Presser, who's a well-regarded military mind and, you know, a good soldier from what we see of him in A Feast for Crows, just being like, you fucking moron, Stafford. What the fuck are you doing, man? Like, oh, it's it's great for me as a Stark loyalist. So let's talk a little bit about the battle itself as Rob Stark, as I should call him, actually of the night. It's interesting that Rob has continued to use night attacks and raids, and this is an extremely effective way in counteracting the numerical disadvantages that he faces against the Lancers time and time again. And again, like I talked back in episode 63, Rob Stark using a night raid is pretty unique. It's it's rare in medieval, in historical medieval and, and uh, ancient antiquities battles that you would use night attacks because it was really hard to communicate at night and control the different elements of the army without the use of radios and telecommunications. And adding in that lack of visibility makes it doubly difficult. And that's why the plan had to be simple. A long, long time ago, back in 2005, I want to say, I had a brief opportunity to train with a special forces team. And me, being a dumbass 20-year-old at the time, asked these guys what the magical tactics were that made them so successful. And then one guy, this grizzled team sergeant, who looked and spoke exactly like Jeff Fox, we're like, shit, you not, looked at me and drawled, boy, we don't do different shit. We just train the same shit over and over again until we know our shit in and out. That's what Rob's doing at Oxcross. The plan isn't some magical battle plan. Okay, maybe it's a little bit of a magical battle plan. It's just a regular kind of four-phased, three-phased operation. Cut the horse lines, deploy Greywind to scare the bejesus out of the horses, and then lead a unified cavalry charge while chaos is enveloping the Lancer camp. And the process of that cavalry charge, Stafford Lancer is killed by Lord Rickard Karstark. And that's that's it. That's It's really simple tactics. And it's really fascinating that the Lancers are like, shit, we just got like walloped by this kid using like really, you know, just just basically by the book types of ways that to lead a medieval army in battle. So what's the aftermath of the battle itself? Uh, well, simply, Rob is now in the Westerlands and he starts to sack the shit out of the Westerlands. Tywin then has to move west and Heron Hall falls to Bruce Bolton. And we're going to talk about like the ethics of Rob's Westerland campaigns. Excuse me. We're going to talk about Rob's Westerland campaigns towards the end of this episode. And we're going to have, have a pretty great discussion on the ethics of Rob Chevachet in the Westerlands in later Catelyn, Clash, and Storm chapters. But I think it's important for our purposes to kind of outline why this victory was just so fucking impressive and nearly, if not more impressive than Rob's earlier victories in the Game of Thrones. The Westlands were now open for Rob to move through at will, and Rob's victory meant that Tywin was faced with a real shitty choice. Stay in Harrenhal to protect King's Landing, or head west to save the homeland. Tywin chooses the Westerlands and seemingly abandons King's Landing to its fate, and this allows Roose Bolton then to move in and take Harrenhal. So now, King's Landing is completely surrounded. It's that moment in the story where everything is breaking wrong for the Lannisters and breaking right for the Starks and the Baratheons. And oh, we'll talk about it in a moment here, but the timing of everything and how it just falls to pieces just is heartbreaking. So, so heartbreaking. Uh, I love what you were saying about the Lannisters talking up 
Rob's magical prowess in battle to obscure the fact that he beat them with, with good old-fashioned tactics and was just their, <laughs> their failure to grasp these that, that led to their defeat. And we'll, we'll, see, we'll see so much more about the, the power of rumor and information with the Battle of Oxcross because we don't see it directly. George will go on to scatter the news of Oxcross across multiple POVs, showing us the reaction in each camp. Winterfell in Bran 5, Harrenhal in Arya 8, and finally Riverrun in Catelyn 5. But it is worth noting how the first exposition we get about the battle plays out with these specific characters. I love it when Sansa exults. I love that George uses that word, exults, that Rob will <laughs> kill you all. Yes. Allowing the reader to feel not only the thrill of Rob's unexpected victory, but also the liberation of Sansa celebrating her brother's crusade on the inside, even as she maintains her courtesies on the outside. I'm so strongly with her in this moment as she aims her silent thoughts like a weapon at Tyrion, so intensely that he feels and responds to them. I also love that Tyrion calls back to his monologue in Tyrion 5 about Rob versus Tywin and the lion versus the fawn. When he says that Rob has proved himself to be no fawn. <laughs> Sansa wasn't even present for that conversation, so this is purely for our benefit. A signpost for the reader that Tyrion is all too aware that his confident framing of the Lannister war footing to Cersei in that earlier Tyrion chapter was bullshit. In truth, they are in deep, deep trouble now. Tyrion tried to shore up this politically dire position by reaching out to the Martells, and in his next chapter, he will propose the alliance with the Tyrells, which is what saves the Lannisters from destruction. But on this reread, I found myself thinking more and more about Tywin's reaction to the Battle of Oxcross, and what just a humiliation this is for him on every level. His cousin killed, the army he was waiting on, counting on, scattered. The Golden Tooth, the guarantee his vassal's lands would stay untouched, has been subverted. Said vassal's lands are now at the mercy of the unstoppable, charismatic young warrior king who has now repeatedly made Tywin look <laughs> dumb in front of his men. As you say, Tywin abandons the capital, and so his daughter, his son, and his grandson, the king, to the Baratheons, despite considering the Baratheons his primary foes, as he said at the end of Book 1, such as the immediate existential threat posed by Rob's army rampaging around the Westerlands at will, potentially threatening even Lannisport. Now, a series of perfectly timed domino falls will deliver the Lannisters to victory by the end of the book in spite of all these circumstances. Only after the Blackwater, Roose taking Harrenhal, his bastard wiping out Stark loyalists at Winterfell, and Rob breaking his vow to the phrase on behalf of Jane Westerling, only after all of that does the Red Wedding become conceivable. So strategically, logistically, politically, all the infrastructure of the Red Wedding, the defining moment of the War of Five Kings, the defining atrocity of the story so far, all of that is still in the future. But the emotional core of it, the smoldering ember of resentment and rage that drove Tywin Lannister to not only defeat but obliterate Robb Stark, I think that starts here, now. I think Tywin vowed at this moment after Oxcross when all seemed lost that if he somehow made it out of this, he would make the rivers run red with the King in the North's blood. And then the fates, or rather George R. R. Martin, <laughs> arranged everything to make his nightmarish dream come true. Tywin must have felt the gods were on his side when this all snapped together. So coming back to Sansa 3 with that in mind, I feel like for all that Tywin is a far more intelligent and accomplished individual than Joffrey would ever be, their motivations are the same. Joffrey's motivation in this chapter is Tywin's motivation for the Red Wedding. 
Both lions feel their pride pricked by the young wolf's traitorous insistence on being better than them at everything, and both try to wash it out with blood. Oh, that's really well said. I think that you're exactly right about this being the impetus for Tywin to react so brutally to these humiliations that he's been experiencing. As we know about Tywin Lannister, how does he react to the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion and to his father? He murders the bejesus out of everyone. He has Amory Lorch throw a three-year-old boy down a well. He does horrific atrocities. How does Tywin Lannister react when Aerys Targaryen treats him like a servant and treats him you know, poorly. He sacks King's Landing, killing hundreds, raping thousands, and he dispatches his worst men to go after the king's grandson and granddaughter and the king's daughter-in-law in the form of Elia Martell. How does Tywin react to Elia Martell and the pos- and the and trying to put Cersei in front of Rhaegar Targaryen? He goes for the jugglers I was just talking about and having her brutally raped and then murdered with her, as I think it's put in Storm of Swords, with her son's brains on top of her. It was just horrific sort of shit that Tywin is into. I think it's an excellent point that Tywin has the same psychological makeup that Joffrey has here. And I just want to emphasize a little bit more about what you're talking about, about the timing of everything and talking about the Red Wedding and the impact of Oxcross on it. And a little bit about the butterfly effect, too, because this is the Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, Rob's utter routed Oxcross wouldn't be complete without it helping to sow the seeds of Rob's downfall. The timing. I mean, the battle occurs just prior to Renly and Stannis' parlay, where it takes six days to reach King's Landing, and it probably arrived maybe a day or two earlier at Harrenhal. So Tywin finds out about Oxcross, gets his army to march, gets his army ready to march west, just as Stannis and Renly lock horns. And then Stannis spends a not insignificant amount of time besieging Storm's End. Tyrion then dispatches Littlefinger to the Tyrells after Renly's death as Tywin marches west. Edmure blocks Tywin's crossing at the Stone Mill. Tyrell envoys reach Tywin just in time for Tywin and the Tyrells to mount barges and float to King's Landing to defeat Stannis just prior, hours prior to Stannis taking the city itself. And I'm on record as not being a big fan of alternate universes and kind of these ways that some people try and imagine the universe playing out. But I'm going to leave that aside for just a moment and note that if a battle, if the battle occurs a day earlier or a day later, Stannis might have been in King's Landing when the Lannister Tyrells, when the Lannisters and the Tyrells arrive outside of the walls. And the timing by George in writing all this narrative is just so, so precise. But as we'll talk in significant depth for Bran's fifth chapter, the Stark side had casualties too, and the most significant casualty was Sir Stephen Frey, murdered by Blackwater, as we'll talk about in Bran 5. As Rob is going to note in A Storm of Swords, with Sir Stephen, I might have been able to make amends. Now, maybe Rob is being a bit idealistic here, but it can't be discounted that Stephen's death met, meant that a Stark loyalist heir was out of the picture, replaced by shitty phrase like Ryman and Blackwater Frey. So while Stephen Atwell argued convincingly, as we talked about back in Bran's second chapter, that the Hornwood inheritance crisis was the biggest piece in Rob's downfall, we can't discount how the Starks were able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory through really no fault of their own. Rob certainly makes mistakes, but he gets punished all out of proportion to them, and so much of what befalls him and Catelyn is out of their control entirely. As you say, in the midst of his great cunning victory in Oxcross, he loses this really crucial fray, which could have made the Red Wedding politically untenable, because Stevron was the heir. If he puts his foot down, that might be enough to cause enough division within the fray camp to prevent it from going on, because something like the Red Wedding, you really need everyone to be on board. So as with Stannis' defeat at the Blackwater, everything has to go just so for the Red Wedding. And even before any of the direct logistical inputs i think you can see it starting with with tywin having his back against the corner here because you said about the rain tarbeck rebellion or the sack of king's landing when tywin has his back against the wall that's really when you got to watch out 
So I think that about wraps us up for the depth portion of this episode, transitioning into the foreshadowing groundwork here. Oh boy, we get some more hashtag riot watch as Joffrey Woo! talks gleefully about killing starving protesters. They are not going to be happy about having crossbow bolt shot at them. I know, shocking, right? That people don't like being murdered for no reason whatsoever besides wanting to eat. I, I know, crazy, right? All of those people, and probably some of the ones, the very ones who are outside of the walls of the Red Keep, are going to rise up against Joffrey in force in just a couple Tyrion chapters for now. Man, we're just two Tyrion chapters short of Riot, the Riot King's Landing Riot and the Rise of King Bread. All these energies that we're seeing kind of shake under the surface of King's Landing and these Sansa and Tyrion chapters are going to explode all at once in Tyrion 9. And it's just just great example of setup and payoff in George's part. Mm-hmm. And the business with Sansa and Sandor's cloak in this chapter will also pay off in dramatic fashion at the end of the Battle of Blackwater. When he leaves his cloak behind with her, oh so symbolically, very, you know, kind of romantic and speaking to his intentions to be a true knight, but also I can't be one with you and, you know... The shippers will write their own poems to this from here. But, you know, the 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 emotional dynamic between Sansa and Sandor in that scene is, is very strong. And the, the leaving the cloak behind is, is very resonant in large part because of this scene in Sansa 3 setting it up. Right. And we do know from northern wedding traditions that you're supposed to wrap the, – the man is supposed to yep. wrap the cloak around the woman. And we That's see that with, Al, with Alice Karstark and Sigourn and, and John's – Ninth, in John's Tenth. 11th chapter in A Dance with Dragons. And, you know, this has led to people thinking that this is Sandor Clegane symbolically marrying Sansa Stark, which might be taking it a, a bit too far, but I still see where they're actually pulling some of that from in this chapter itself. Not not literally, but it's it's definitely telling that the, the symbol of chivalry and kindness and sweetness is happening in the context of this horrible, bloody, brutal scene. Like, I think that speaks very well to the Sansa-Sandor relationship. It's got these possibilities of hope and connection, but also a lot of danger and damage going on. And that's that's the core of the relationship. Oh, yeah. As we're going to see in Sansa's fourth chapter, when Sandor and Santa have a lovely chat on top of the, the Red Key. It's terrible. It's awful. Third thing, Sansa's thinking Tyrion is looking ugly, coupled with Tyrion's statements that he does not intend to marry Sansa to Joffrey, I think is George starting to work in the foreshadowing for the coming Tyrion-Sansa marriage come a storm of swords. It's very likely, in my opinion, that George likely integrated some foreshadowing for the events that would occur in a storm of swords, even back in these early Sansa chapters in A Clash of Kings, because he wants to kind of augment it out and kind of show this relationship occurring from both Tyrion's perspective as well as from Sansa's perspective. He's definitely clearing the board for it in terms of, yeah, yeah easing up on the, the Sansa Joffrey betrothal, and she'll be replaced in that regard, of course, by Marjorie at the end of the book. Uh, the Tyrion-Sansa relationship, as I've said before, is not one of my favorite parts of A Storm of Swords or the series as a whole. I don't, it's not super emotionally engaging to me, but it does have to be there because otherwise it doesn't make real sense for Tyrion and Sansa to be blamed They are the way they are together after the Purple Wedding. They have to be husband and wife for that to make sense. So I get that. Another connection in that, that's uh, relevant to that is that Sansa's saying in this chapter that she has not flowered yet, but she will get her first period in her next chapter, which is, of course, connected to the relationship with Sandor, as we talked about, because the you know she gets her period right after that scene with Sandor, and it's connected to the fires of the Blackwater. And we'll, we'll talk more about this, of course, when we get to Sansa 4, but you get, you get this overall sense that like Sansa feels like her... Her growth into womanhood has become kind of corrupted and connected to the battle and just the awfulness and Sandor's way of looking at the world. So she gets no no joy out of any of that. And you can see the kind of same thing at a smaller scale in this chapter where like Sansa is no longer allowed to be comfortable in her body. She's no longer allowed to take joy in it. It's just this, some, this, this thing that hurts that other people take away from her. You know what I mean? 
I do know what you mean. And that is a really sad aspect of, of Sansa that she feels that her body has betrayed her. She says in Sansa's yes. first chapter, it's a banner it's really, of Lannister crimson. Yep. Yeah. That's great. It's, it's like, she's like feeling herself at being that she's feeling herself a traitor in that chapter. It's really, really good. And who's there to comfort Sansa, but Cersei? Cer- Cersei and her like tenderest ish. I know. The Song it, of Ice and Fire. It's a very emotionally strange chapter. I look forward to it. It's, it <laughs> there's, there's, we- there's weird currents going on in those scenes. And that's, uh, that's interesting stuff. So, shifting into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode, now George has said that he regrets not giving Rob a POV for the Western campaign, which we have just heard about from afar with the Battle of Oxcross. So I thought we should talk how, how we feel about that. Do we think Rob should have been given a POV? Whose POV might have been interesting in the Western campaign if it's not Rob himself? And I was also curious to if, if Jeff Hartline was writing A Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> which of course you did because you're George, as everyone always says. Of course. And you and you decided to write the Battle of Oxcross on page through a POV. How you how you might have written it? So what do you what do you think about all this, sir? How how, how would you have? Uh, what do you think about the Westerlands campaign? How George did it, and what you might have done differently? All great questions. Rob Stark as a point of view, I think, is is the one we need to start with. And you know, George has said a few times, starting I think in 2012, and beyond that, numerous times that he regrets not having Rob Stark as a POV character. And probably the most complete way that he's answered this as to why he feels that he this is a regret of his is from his 2017 St. Petersburg appearance in an interview at in an interview with Esquire Russia, in which the questioner asked, do you regret that someone did not show up as a POV? And George says, sometimes, yes, although I think I have more than enough narratives. He laughs then. Maybe even a little more than I need at this stage, and I need to kill a few characters. But I still regret most of all that I did not let Rob Stark be the main character in the early books. This is, again, a translation from Russian. I think he means to be a point of view in the early books. His death had already made a huge impression, but it could have had an even greater impact if throughout the whole history, we saw a little more of the events through his eyes, especially if they knew what happened to him in the Westerlands, where he led his army and where he was wounded in the battle. He went out to Jane Westerling, to whom he eventually married, and this in turn triggered a chain of events that led to the Red Wedding. Of course, I'm talking here about the book. In the series, everything goes a little bit differently, in the TV series, that is. In the books, we learn about Rob along with Kat and the chapters told from her point of view. Rob came back and presented his new wife to his mother. We do not know what happened there. So for us, it's like a bolt from the blue. And this is a very good scene. But if I gave Rob his own point of view, then the text would have been even better. So basically, George's perspective seems to be on Rob as a point of view that he could have made A Song of Ice and Fire better by making the Red Wedding even more of an emotional gut punch. Learning about the Westerlands campaign while it occurs instead of from reports from Westerlands and Clash and a retrospect from Brendan Tully and Rob Stark and Storm, and then adding just a little bit more weight behind Rob's marriage to Jane Westerling. So those are interesting reasons that George thinks that Rob should have been a point of view in retrospect. But before we even talk about the Battle of Oxcross and the campaign of the Westerlands, I, I guess I have to ask you, do you think A Song of Ice and Fire is lessened, somewhat lessened by not having Rob as a point of view? Honestly, not really. I like George's decision to present the kings, or at least the first slate of kings in the series, as non-point of view characters. It forces us to interpret them the way their subjects and vassals do. It traps them in context, and the POVs we work with are the people who have to try to live their lives around these guys. Stannis, in particular, I think is greatly enhanced by his non-POV status. If we were inside his head, it would just be a lot more Victorian chapters. And <laughs> I like Victorian chapters, but I think the Same. amount we have is just about right. <laughs> the only exception to this rule really is Danny, and that works because she's isolated from all the rest, so it doesn't feel weird. 
As I've said, Rob resonates for me in the context of Catelyn's POV, specifically. He's her firstborn, who came into the world red-faced and squalling. The tiny life who accompanied her north, a stranger in a strange land after a devastating war. She forged that intense bond with him, and that's stayed a huge part of her life. She keeps seeing the child inside the man as he grows up. And even as she's proud of him and recognizes the need for him to succeed as a warrior king for their family to stay alive... She instinctively wants to protect him, especially as she loses her other children, or seems to anyway. Rob also works for me juxtaposed with the Stark children who are POVs. It makes sense to me that the, the old, handsome, most beloved one would be the one whose head were not inside, because he's just the image, he's the standard, he's the non-POV person you compare yourself to. They all live in Rob's shadow, especially John, but they also look up to him. He recedes from history, but he burns brightly in their eyes the way Ned does, and I, I like that. That's poetically and well put, man. I, and I agree with you. I mean, I sometimes get the sense from George that if he's not lending the spotlight to all arenas in the War of the Five Kings, that he's letting his readers down. And Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get the sense from not seeing the campaign in the Westerlands that we're being let down as readers. I mean, if anything, not being present for the battles in the West makes Rob that much more of a legend in our eyes. And overall, though, I'm with you, though, in the narrative's of Rob Stark works best as seen through others, as he puts so well. Plus, as I've said in the past, we already have Rob Stark's point of view in the form of Ned's chapters in Game of Thrones and Catelyn's chapters from a Game of Thrones into A Storm of Swords. And I think, too, George has said the Red Wedding would be much more, that much more powerful with Rob Stark as a point of view. I disagree. I, I hate to disagree with the author of the source material, but <laughs> I, you know, it's so much more visceral seeing it through Catelyn's eyes. Same way that it was so much more visceral as seeing Ned's execution through Arya's eyes and Sansa's recollections. It conveys the horror and it packs an effective narrative punch that really reverberated through the zeitgeist to this day. Don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Watching Roose Bolton stab Rob Stark through the heart, through the heart as the mother of Rob Stark. It's brutal and it works so effectively as it stands. And I can't imagine it being that much more effective for Rob. The only way I can imagine being a little bit more effective is seeing the death of Grey Wind through Rob's perspective. That would have been added just another layer of, of emotional gut punch. But I think it works effective as it stands right now. So let's transition from Rob Stark's point of view and talk about how I, as the author of A Song of Ice and Fire, would write the Battle of Oxcross. So forget everything I said about it not being better to have a point of view out in the Westerlands. Let's <laughs> fanfic this shit, man. I mean, when we're talking about battles, I mean, something I appreciate about George's style in writing them is that he ends up making them all unique in certain ways, whether it's Tyrion in the mud at the Battle of the Green Fork, Catelyn's poetic musings at the Whispering Wood, the Davos-Tyrion-Sansa dynamics showing all sides of the Battle of the Blackwater, the visceral horror of Quentin's memories of the Battle of Astapor, and all the other different ways that George writes battles. George gives his battles a uniqueness that makes them feel like, you know, you're not reading the same thing over and over again. So what's the narrative spark that would make the Battle of Oxcross feel unique as compared to all the other battles? And for me, the answer is point of views. But before I give my perspective, I want to ask your perspective. Say you were writing the Battle of Oxcross who would, and the campaign of the Westerlands, who would be your point of view for this, for this part of the story? Well, obviously, there are a bunch of northern nobles riding around with, with Rob, and a lot of them are fun characters. Some of them are fan favorites, like Great John Umber. 
But if I had to pick a POV for Rob's Westerlands campaign, I would go with Daisy Mormont. Hmm. She's the, the heir to Bear Island, eldest child of Lady Mage Mormont. I really like her dynamic with her mom, Mage, that we see in A Storm of Swords and in some of the Catalan chapters. And the Mormonts are a significant lesser house all the way through the story, even in the show where we actually hmm. meet Liana Mormont, who we haven't met yet in the books. So it would, you know, it would be nice for them to get a POV because they're a significant house. We could learn more about Mormont history and about Jorah's backstory. And uh, I just think it would be... It would be interesting to get a that kind of northern perspective, a younger woman fighting with the other men and looking up to Rob, having this dynamic with her mom on the road, maybe talking about miss, missing her younger sisters and, and bonding with her mom over that. I think you could you could get the information across but still tell kind of an, an a, a emotional story unto itself. And she dies a particularly horrible death at the <laughs> Red Wedding, which is already emotionally devastating. Maybe it would be better even more so. I don't know, you know, saying it's better if we're inside the person's head when they die. I'm always like, is it always really necessarily who knows? But uh, a huge part of the Red Wedding, what makes the Red Wedding so devastating is the death of these other young Northerners, not just Rob. It's Daisy Mormont. It's Wendell Manderley. It's Small John Umber, Robin Flint. And um, spending more time with them might make that even more devastating. I, I like that that a lot. I think we can see like a archetype for the character Brienne as she becomes a point of view in the Feast for mm-hmm. Crows. Good as, point. Good. Yeah, that's a great. I hadn't even thought of that. That's true. I mean, Catelyn notes that Brienne is very infatuated with, with Renly Baratheon and Daisy Mormont, as Catelyn also notes at, at the Red Wedding, notes that she's dancing with Rob and she starts musing like, oh, if only like this, things that worked out in a certain way, Daisy Mormont would have been an excellent match for Rob Stark and it would have been so wonderful and lovely and now with everything so sad and everyone is dying or about to die and it's very sad everything's very sad as always it's the story of how stark um so i, I love daisy as, as a potential point of view for the campaign the westerlands too and i think for for other purposes i, I think would also be interested too in like some of the things that we learned in passing about like beige mormont leading cows into like the riverlands stealing them from the westerlands and taking them back like that seems like a kind of an interesting, fun side story that we can like get a little bit of more information about. I can see that happening. But for me, I, I picked a, a sad character, namely in the form of Rickard Karstark as your point of view. So what do we learn about the Battle of Oxcross? It's this moment of triumph for Sansa Stark. It's a moment of sort of triumph for Bran, although he feels kind of scared by the event. And it's a moment for Arya where she's like, yeah, get Tywin the Lannister the fuck out of Harrenhal. Rickard Karstark would provide a different type of perspective to it. He is already someone that we've seen who is very much broken by the death of his two sons at the Battle of the Whispering Wood. He, as other son, Harry and Karstark, has now been taken captive by Tywin Lannister and is at Harrenhal, as we talked about in Arya's seventh chapter. So what is his perspective on all of this glorious combat taking place? It would be a kind of a shit show, in my opinion. And that's why I think I would focus on him as a point of view, because his perspective is not that he's out there doing the right thing for House Stark, working to end the predilations of these terrible Lannisters. Him, He's avenging Ned Stark. Now, nah, this guy is out there because he wants to kill as many Lannisters as is humanly possible in order to satiate the rage and brokenness inside of him at the death of his sons at the Battle of the Whispering Wood and the capture of his eldest son at the Battle of the Green Fort. That to me seems like an interesting perspective to have to contrast the seeming glory of the battlefield that we're experiencing in these different point of view chapters. And it ultimately culminates too in Rickard Karstark being the person behind the murders of those Lannister boys at the start of A Storm of Swords, which ends up sending Rob Stark spiraling even farther towards the Red Wedding. So for me, I, I look at a point of view in terms of how important they are to the main story, but also in terms of how they might clash and contrast against the dynamic that we see underworking these all, the dynamic playing 
throughout these different Stark point of views, the kind of glorious triumphalist side of how Stark is seemingly at the cusp of victory at this point in the story, Rickard Karstark provides something very different, very unique, very dark, I want to say. I think that's a very interesting idea. One of the It would be one of the villain POVs that George likes to play with, a POV whose brain you kind of flinch from, but you're made to understand their downfall and why they're motivated the way they are. You could see a brief spurt in his emotions after he personally gets to kill Stafford Lannister and he feels like he's gotten his revenge, but then hmm. maybe a, a, a re-spiral down after he hears about Jamie. So yeah, I think these, 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 are, com- these are compelling choices. I, I think we can both say, though, I think we're satisfied with the narrative as is, and I yeah. really enjoy the job George does of making up for this where he gives you ox cross across a different bunch of different POVs and, and everyone kind of goes, okay, that was a victory. So on to the next one. And everyone just kind of moves on. <laughs> I think that's, I think that ends up being uh, a great way of addressing what he might feel as a mistake. I don't feel like it's a mistake, but if he does, I think he did a great job of, of making up for it as he wrote it. I think I absolutely agree with that. I think that it was not a mistake to not have the battle of ox cross in the narrative. It works better in Sansa, Arya, Bran's and Tyrion's perspectives in a clash of Kings. And then again, in Catelyn's perspective in a storm of swords. And I enjoy it. I think it's, it's good as is. And it leads us to like, do a lot of like interesting thinking about how Rob conducted the Westerlands campaign, which we will talk about at significant length come Catelyn five to eight in a clash of Kings. But I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of a clash of Kings Sansa three. We want to, as always, to say thank you so much for listening to us and thank you so much for all the reviews we've been getting on, on Apple Podcasts. They've been really fun and good and they made us feel good about ourselves. And if you guys have the chance and you want to rate and review us, feel free to do so on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcast. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of WordPress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Lord Jay Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, and Septon, Maryful Head of Hair. Thank you very much to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, very, very much for supporting us. We've always really appreciated it. So... Join us next week for A Clash of Kings John 4 and 5, in which Elsie Mormont's Great Ranging arrives at the Fist of the First Men and meets up with a stone-cold badass named Corrin Halfhand. I just love how that flows off my tongue. I know Jeff's been looking forward to Corrin for a while, and of course also John finds a pile of junk that probably won't pay off or be important at all. Oh, you mean the pile of junk that was left by Cold Hands? Yes, Jeff, the pile of junk that was left by Benjen Stark. <laughs> We'll get all into that, folks. 
Oh my goodness, and we are going to get all into it on our next live stream episode. So if you guys enjoy watching us on YouTube, banner back and forth and analyze chapters in the Song of Ice and Fire, join us on our YouTube channel on Monday, January 9th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And come join in the discussion, the fun, the commenting. You guys love it. We love it too. Absolutely. As always, I look forward to those live episodes. We'll be tackling two chapters at once, so come check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys literally next time.